Uh, my name is Mac Owens. I'm the Dean of Academics here at IWP. For those of you who don't know about IWP, most of you do, but for those of you who don't, uh, we are a independent graduate school of national security affairs. Been in business since uh, 1990. Uh, our focus, of course, is uh, we have three masters, degree, full masters, we have uh, a number of certificates. And uh, it's just a really fun place to be. I taught for 28 years up in Newport, Rhode Island, the Naval War College. My colleague, Nick Postel. And uh, one of the cool things about being the dean is I get to invite my friends to talk. <laughs> and Nick is a friend, and as I say, former colleague at the Naval War College. And uh, Nick has been down there a couple of times, uh, and most recently in April, to talk about Russia. And that now. This is follow-on. He can talk about uh, what he said in April and how the things have changed. Nick Vostov is, uh, is a professor of national security affairs at the Naval War College in Newport. He also holds a chair up there, the Jerome Levy a Chair in Economic Geography and National Security. He's also, we're, we're also, uh, we are former colleagues of the Naval War College, but we're current colleagues at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. I'm the editor of their journal, and Nick is a senior fellow there. See what I mean about friends? Okay. Uh, he has been previously the editor of uh, the National Interest Magazine and was a senior fellow at the Nixon Center. He received his doctorate from St. Anthony's College in Oxford, uh, where he studied Rhodes, uh, on a Rhodes Scholarship. and. Uh, was a uh, uh, studied, uh, I'm sorry, I wrote his college. He also is his focus course in Eurasia and, uh, and, and Russia and has been featured in a number of different publications. He appears on television all the time. As a, and he's rare in the sense that he actually knows what he's talking about. As you know, many people on TV talk, don't know what they're talking about, but he does so. Uh, he is the co-author of a book called U.S. Uh, Foreign Policy and Defense Strategy, The Rise of Incidents of Superpower. I am also a co-author of that book, but they're being very kind to me because actually he and our other uh, colleague up at the Newport, Eric Reverend, did most of the work. So thank you for permitting me to be on the book. Appreciate it. He's also the co-author of a book called uh, Russian Foreign Policy, Vectors, sectors, and interests. So please join me in welcoming Nick. How positive. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, first and foremost, I do need to give my disclaimer. Uh, so, because I do work at the U.S. Naval War College uh, as my day job, uh, so my opinions are not uh, reflecting any official position of the U.S. Navy or the U.S. government. And certainly, I think as my talk continues, you'll see why they don't reflect any uh, official opinions. And so I'm Although here, all your opinions are right. Even if they're, even if they're right. <laughs> and so I'm not here in a personal capacity in that regard. I, as Mac mentioned, I was here in April uh, to give uh, an assessment of where I thought U.S.-Russia relations were heading. If you were at that April talk, I'm sorry, I'm going to give a bit of a recap uh, to set the stage for where I am today. Uh, in April, I talked about the two tendencies in 
American national thinking about Russia. There are two broad camps. Uh, there are the Russia engagers and the Russia skeptics. And the Russia engagers break down. Some are people who believe that Russia and the United States have natural interests together, that they should be partners together, uh, and that uh, they should be drawing together uh, in a cooperative relationship. Another stream of the Russia engager camp says, yes, Russia does a lot of things uh, in its domestic policy and its international affairs that we don't like, but we need to engage with them because the United States has bigger fish to fry in other parts of the world and we need or expect Russia to be able to contribute to help us to solve those problems in other parts of the world. So the second stream of Russia engagement is a cost-benefit approach that says the negatives that Russia is doing uh, in the world uh, are outweighed by the potential benefits the United States might accrue from uh, working more closely with Russia. On the Russia skeptic side, we also have two broad uh, camps uh, that emerge under that rubric. The first uh, is are those who also do a cost-benefit analysis and say that the help that Russia might provide uh, is does not outweigh the problems that Russia creates for the United States or the way Russia governs itself at home, or that Russia is not likely to give substantive help to the United States in these other areas. So they share a similar cost-benefit analysis but come to a different conclusion that says engaging with Russia is not worth, is not worth it uh, in the sense of trying to convince the Russians or to offer the Russians concessions or accommodations uh, because the United States will not come out better uh, on the end of that bargain. And then another part of the Russia skeptic community are those who say Russia is, in fact, whether for ideological reasons or geopolitical reasons, uh, always going to be aligned against the U.S. in terms of values and interests. And some of that will be people who say this is a result of Russian history, Russian culture, uh, the geopoliticians will look at the way the geography influences, and it's a continental power, and the United States is an oceanic power, and you'll always have that clash. So the Russia skeptic camp is going to look at the question of engagement with Russia and say, we don't really see benefits, or if there are benefits, they'll be outweighed by the costs. So that was the general framework which I provided in April. And I said, in April, when we were looking at the Trump administration, it wasn't clear how these two groups were going to balance themselves out in the administration. That at the time, of course, candidate Trump had run in 2016 uh, sounding engagement themes. He talked about, can we get a deal with Russia? Can I engage with uh, Vladimir Putin and perhaps uh, work out some sort of arrangement uh, that would benefit the United States. He had not, in terms of where we were in April, really filled out the full panoply of the national security establishment in terms of key appointments, so it was unclear how he was going to structure the executive branch. Uh, but at the same time, it was also clear that uh, in the Congress, a bipartisan consensus for a variety of reasons, ranging from traditional perspectives and skepticism on Russia to newfound skepticism of Russia that emerged as a result of the 2016 election, that the Congress was definitely moving in the Russia skeptic camp and was going to uh, be looking at ways that Congress could 
constrain the freedom of action of the administration, or at least uh, put limits on what the administration could do if it was going to move in an engagement direction vis-a-vis Russia. That's, so that's where I left our uh, discussion in April. That's where the situation stood. Where we are today now at the end of October uh, is we have to some extent solved the question of whether or not the United States under the Trump administration is going to be a Russia engager or a Russia skeptic. It's going to be a Russia skeptical administration for the most part. Because the two major things that have shifted since April to now. The first is that the president either in the appointments that he has personally overseen or in how he has delegated to his secretaries and to his White House staff to fill the critical positions that matter for how the U.S.-Russia relationship evolves. The president has not had any Russia litmus test, so he has not looked out and reached out and said, well, who are the Russia engagers in the American foreign policy community? Let me bring them into my administration. Instead, he has seemingly, at least our view from my view sitting up in Newport, out of the beltway, uh, is that the president has tended to staff his administration based upon personality fit, whether or not the person in question has publicly questioned his fitness to be president or has engaged in any insulting, public insulting behavior, and whether or not the person in question has a career track that the president respects. In other words, success in business, military leadership, and the like. So the president has not, in any of his critical appointments, seemingly reached out and said, I want people that lean to one of the streams of the Russian engagement camp. And whether by choice or simply by allowing it to happen, we have seen the movement of uh, State Department, Pentagon, NSC, and elsewhere, uh, people uh, who would incline more towards the skeptical side uh, of the spectrum when it comes to U.S.-Russia relations. Even his choice of ambassador to Moscow and choosing Governor Huntsman, uh, he chose someone with no particular Russia background, no particular Russia expertise, doesn't speak the language, uh, very qualified in terms of China, but does not appear to have been sent to Moscow uh, to uh, try to wean Russia away from its strategic partnership with China. But also someone, uh, and this is no uh, slam on, I think, for on Governor Huntsman, and I think he would himself admit, someone who doesn't have a close personal relationship with the president. Someone who can't say, I can reflect in Moscow, I can go into the Kremlin and reflect the president's thinking and that I have the president's confidence. So you have, you know, a choice of ambassador to Moscow, uh, someone that is not in a position, if the president was thinking, I want a trusted deal maker to go begin quietly sounding out the parameters of what a U.S.-Russia deal would look like. Again, going back to his own campaign rhetoric, going back to more than a year ago, to the speech he gave at the Mayflower, a couple blocks away from here, when he kind of laid out the broad parameters of the Mayflower that way, directions are up that way. Uh, he does not have an ambassador in Moscow who is empowered to do that. Who would be able to walk into the Kremlin and say, quietly, let's explore what the parameters of a deal would look like. Whether or not the U.S. would accept the deal, we'll leave that aside. But simply even to begin that type of conversation, uh, we don't have that. 
Second thing that has changed is, as expected, the Congress did act. How the White House chose to work with or simply abdicate the process of negotiating on how congressional action was to be structured, I think, is quite revealing. So the White House objected verbally for a while to provisions in the sanctions, but in the end uh, was not able to get what traditionally presidents often get whenever sanctions legislations are imposed. They either get very clear presidential waiver authority, so that the president has the ability to say conditions have changed and now I can immediately waive sanctions or suspend them. Failing to get that, either acquiescing or his White House congressional liaisons were not committed to this task, did not want to, to negotiate hard on that. Failing that, the backup, which would have been to have some sort of sunset provision for the sanctions, to say, fine, we're going to impose these very harsh sanctions on Russia, they'll last for a period of a year or two years, and then they have to be renewed uh, by another vote. We used to have this uh, with the Iran sanctions, really, until the end of the last decade. They had a renewal process built into them. You had to go back and get the sanctions renewed. That allowed you that in case you were beginning to get a breakthrough on an issue that you could then say, in the end of a year or two years, we can uh, revisit the question of sanctions. So what we now have is a series of sanctions that have been imposed on Russia, in, in essence, in perpetuity. Uh, and some people may say well, that's because people in both parties did not trust President Trump but now they've bound any future president as well. So whether it's the President Pence, if the president uh, doesn't serve out his term or succeeds him, or whichever Democratic frontrunner you're thinking of today coming to the White House, they will be just as bound by the sanctions that have been passed. And as we know from the history, uh, Congress is quick to pass sanctions and is very slow to remove them. So, not even just thinking about Russia, if you think about pro-Western countries of the former Soviet Union, Ukraine, Moldova, how long it took them to be graduated from sanctions, congressional sanctions, uh, is because Congress moves slowly, does not move quickly, uh, and it's a cumbersome process. Well, now you have that binding on any president, not just President Trump, uh, which removes flexibility. And in fact, what I found most interesting about the final form that the sanctions took was not that the White House actively was able to reshape the sanctions pact. It was our European allies who went in to lobby to say, you really have some provisions in here which are problematic, or which will create problems in the transatlantic relationship, uh, calling to mind some of the unpleasantness that we had uh, in the 1990s, uh, with regard to our Iran and Libya sanctions with the third party provisions and the Germans, the French and others saying we really need to find a way through Congress to modify certain things so we don't run up against what happened in 1997, 1998, uh, where we're now, at, uh, we're now at odds with each other because of some of the provisions. So the Europeans, I think, my opinion, had more influence on shaping the final disposition of the uh, congressional sanctions uh, than the White House, and then, of course, the president signed them. Uh, he signed them with a very interesting statement of, well, I don't really like these, but I'm signing the law, I'm signing it into law anyway, uh, 
the signing statement contained, as, with, as we've seen with signing statements of both Presidents Bush and Obama, some reference to, I believe some of this is advisory because infringes on my Article II uh, authorities in the Constitution. Uh, how far the President is willing to uh, move in that direction remains to be seen. We are now running up against the first set of deadlines uh, based on that legislation for the executive branch to begin uh, having to review third-party impositions. So people have not yet seen Josh Rogan's column today in the Washington Post uh, that this is now, we are now up against a statutorily driven deadline uh, for the executive branch uh, to begin having to implement aspects of the Russia sanctions. And also now to have to begin looking at sanctions uh, potentially against Turkey and Saudi Arabia if they go ahead with certain uh, defense purchases uh, that they have contracted uh, with the Russian Arms Export Agency. So we have a sense that the administration has either acquiesced or has moved in a more Russia-skeptical direction, but we have one small problem, which is it's still not clear that the president himself uh, is moving in this direction. So we have the potential for continued dissonance in U.S.-Russia policy where the president, as an individual, will want to move in one direction that certainly the Congress wants to move in another one, but also his key national security team wants to move in another one. And so some of it we'll see with how the president chooses to or not to impose some of the sanctions that the law essentially requires him to do so. We've also seen dissonance in other areas. It doesn't take the Pentagon months and months and months to go through a review process about whether or not the United States should be providing weapons to Ukraine. And we can say that, yes, bureaucracies are very good at slow rolling and, and drawing it out, but uh, the, the uh, the roadblock there is not in the Pentagon. The roadblock is in the White House. Ultimately, the White House has to make the call uh, whether or not it wants to authorize the sale of lethal U.S. military equipment, particularly anti-tank missiles, uh, to Ukraine. The Pentagon is, can provide its input. It can raise the issues. It can raise the benefits and, and the risks and the like. But ultimately, that's a decision uh, that is uh, sitting in the president's hands, and certainly when the Secretary of State was in Ukraine and was being asked about it, essentially, you can read between the lines of his public statements, which is being asked, well, when are the weapons coming, and it's under review, i.e., the buck does stop at a level higher than him, and we know whose desk that buck stops on, and it's clear that it hasn't moved yet. Uh, the president's first meeting at the G20 uh, with, with Putin. Very interesting uh, in that it was the U.S. side which insisted that the meeting only be between the two presidents, the Secretary of State, the Foreign Minister, and the two interpreters. The Russians were prepared for a traditional, larger, traditional meeting. So I can just use our two of you sitting in the middle with the two presidents, with the two Secretaries of State, and then, of course, national security staff of both sides and other people, you know, they were expecting it was going to be a room of, you know, seven people on both sides. And then when the United, of course, what it meant was 
a number of Russians who wanted to be in that room couldn't be in that room because once the protocol is set that the President of the United States only wants on you know two presidents, two secretaries of state, and of course they need the interpreters for, for language reasons. Uh, you could not have additional people say, well, I want to be in that room as well on the Russian side. So you would have, uh, if you saw some of the photography coming out of the uh, G20 summit, you know, the people kind of milling around the doorway where the meeting is taking place of people who thought that they would be in that room and who weren't there. Because in the sense, at least from the Russian side, was that the president did not want to be managed or handled. That he didn't want his larger national, Russian national security team in there with him uh, because he didn't want the perception that they were going to be passing him notes or the he says something and you get the <coughs> cough or you know the twitch uh, which signals someone on the U.S. side is uh, saying that the president's going off the reservation. He didn't want that. At least that's how the Russians read the request: was that the president is not in sync with his own team. Which, of course, is puzzling to them because then if you're not in sync with them, why did you pick them? Or why have you allowed these people to be chosen and to have these, uh, have these positions? So what does this mean uh, going forward? Where we are? So in April, I said, you know, we might see, I kind of used the checkmate that you would see in U.S. policy that the engagers would not be able to move forward on an engagement plan. Uh, but that the skeptics would uh, not be able, they could check the engagers, but they couldn't also move forward with a more skeptical approach. In October, there is still some of that checkmate there, but now the uh, inertia in the relationship favors the skeptical side uh, because of the way sanctions uh, have been drawn up. This now tilts the balance. If nothing happens, if there's no active move taken by anyone, it, it favors the Russian skeptic side, uh, because it continues to cut Russia off from uh, finance, uh, technology, uh, and the like, uh, to the extent that American companies are willing to comply with U.S. sanctions. That may be another issue. I mean, uh, Maxim Oreshkin was here a few weeks ago, the Russian economy minister, and his remarks to the U.S.-Russia Business Council, kind of, again, reading through the lines of what was being said there which was, yes, we know you American companies have to follow the law, and of course you should follow the law, but if you can find any loopholes uh, to continue your commercial activity in Russia, you know, we certainly would encourage you to do so. Uh, but the very fact that Russian engagement now really seems to have shifted back to the U.S. private sector, you don't have a sense anymore, you certainly don't have a repeat of what you saw last November in Moscow with champagne corks being popped on the floor of the Duma, after the election results were announced, and there's a sense that, once again, as in previous administrations, uh, you're not really going to see the U.S. government as necessarily the interlocutor. What happens, of course, with Ukraine? We still have the, the question of uh, lethal American assistance. At some point, that will have to be resolved, whether we are sending it or not sending it, or whether we'll satisfy that decision by sending some degree of aid, but not everything. Syria question is now bubbling up because now that ISIS is being eliminated as a physical geographic entity in Syria, uh, we're right back to where we were, uh, which is, well, what's the U.S. end state in Syria? Uh, 
technically Assad must go is still US policy, and if it's no longer he must go immediately, still Assad must go at some point. And it's not been formally changed uh, from the Russian perspective, and the Russians just vetoed the continuation of the uh, Syria chemical weapons investigation in the United Nations, so that that uh, investigative committee will not continue its work. Uh, and that essentially is a Russian signal saying, you know, the case is closed. Uh, Assad is the president of Syria. Uh, we're not going to keep looking into who used chemical weapons and when they used them. You know, we, we, Moscow, considers this issue closed. Uh, and the status of Syria uh, as under negotiation, but under negotiation that leaves Assad in control of Syria. Whether the U.S. will acquiesce to that or not, uh, it remains to be seen. North Korea remains a flashpoint. Uh, because uh, the Russians have spearheaded uh, continued uh, sanctions routing uh, to continue the lifeline to essentially help their Chinese partners get off the hook so that China can appear to be more in compliance uh, and gain credit. Uh, but fine, so coal makes its way uh, from China. Uh, I'm sorry, the North Korean exports now just you know, route a different way but still end up... Uh, and fuel still ends up coming into North Korea, uh, but it occurs in a more roundabout fashion. So we have issues there. Obviously, the election issues uh, are still unsettled, uh, but of course, uh, we're moving from our presidential elections to the Russian ones coming up. So uh, whether that will become an issue of what the U.S. does or does not do in terms of how the Russian elections are conducted flashpoints uh, may occur uh, there as well. Uh, and finally, the president, uh, you know, at some point, the president will either say, I defer to the judgment of my national security team on Russia, or uh, I don't defer to it, and then, of course, that national security team will have to decide, do we stay if our advice isn't being taken, or, or do we simply change course and follow presidential direction? Uh, when it comes to uh, the Russian relationship. That, I think, is still uh, up for grabs. Uh, the interesting reaction in Moscow, looking at what the Russians have done over the past six to seven months, as their hopes for their belief that the president was going to be a Russia engager, or at least would lean towards the engagement side as that is faded, uh, the Russians are now taking steps to essentially uh, bypass the United States. That is, they are no longer going to be waiting for, do we get a good relationship with Washington or not? It's now, what can we do to ensure that no matter what Washington's attitude is, key Russian equities are protected? So, the sanctions, what's happening with sanctions is quite interesting. Two $1 billion funds being capitalized by the Saudis to help uh, uh, kick up the slack if you think that uh, there could be additional U.S. financial sanctions. European firms discovering that they can continue to finance their operations in Russia by borrowing from China or going to Dubai and routing funds that way, what's sometimes referred to as the Total model, how Total financed its Yamal gas project in Russia was to borrow money from Chinese sources. Uh, the sale, starting last year and continuing, of pieces of Rosneft, 
Russian state oil company, so obviously BP, the largest Western shareholder. Qatar still holding a tiny piece of it, and now uh, China, uh, ostensibly private Chinese energy concern, uh, picking up uh, a bit of that and, and giving a, a bit of a financial infusion. Uh, and the Russians uh, are showing that they are willing now, in a way that they were less willing before, to take advantage of what they perceive of as American mistakes. So, uh, as we have handed them opportunities from Venezuela to Kurdistan, uh, they are now going to take advantage of them wherever they find the possibility uh, and will do so. So you can see that uh, the Russians are no longer sitting back and just uh, not trying to exploit where they see American missteps or weakness, but they're going to be as active as they can and they're trying to entrench themselves in ways that make it much harder for any particular future sanctions regime uh, to uh, to uh, expose their vulnerabilities. Uh, they also want, sorry, this was one other point, uh, they want a major victory uh, in that uh, at the European summit, just recently concluded, proposal of a number of European countries was that Russian energy projects should be something that the EU handles, should be handled at the EU level, uh, and particularly the Nord Stream, uh, doubling of the Nord Stream capacity and as much as Chancellor Merkel does no longer likes President Putin, doesn't trust him, uh, does not like what's happened in Ukraine, uh, that was a bridge too far and said, nope, Russian-German energy relationships are handled at the Russia-Germany level. Not at the, we're not going to allow 27 other members of the EU uh, to have a voice in how this is going to be structured. That it was a major, understated, but major victory for the Russians uh, and so for the hopes of trying to stop some of these alternate pipeline projects and other things, uh, Turks have certainly decided that Turkish Stream is going to be completed ahead of schedule. Nord Stream is on track to be completed. Uh, and so the Trump administration, and you'll bring me back in 2019, if not earlier, because we're now headed for, and I'll end on this less than optimistic note, we're headed for a real crisis in 2019, which is what happens when the Russian plans to bypass Ukraine are complete. So we have depended for the last 25 years on a strategic vulnerability in that Russia and Ukraine needed each other. Uh, Russia needed Ukraine to be able to reach its markets in Europe, particularly energy markets. Needed pipeline routes, and railroad lines, and other things. Uh, the Russians quietly, steadily, surely are routing around and then in 2019, when they no longer need those Ukrainian transit routes, their interest in Ukrainian security probably evaporates. Because, of course, as much as there's been fighting in Ukraine, everyone has noticed that there's never been any fighting in Ukraine anywhere near the pipelines, even in eastern Ukraine. It's only been in areas that are peripheral to those transit routes. Once that is done, I don't know what happens necessarily to uh, the balance what happens uh, to the strategic relationship, certainly what happens to the income questions for Ukraine in terms of its transit fees. Uh, but the Russians are moving with a plan on isolating Ukraine in order to then have freedom of maneuver. And the Western response so far has been to just sort of watch this happen, wring our hands, uh, and then hope as 
Energy Commissioner Maro Sefcovic for the Europeans just continue to hope against hope that somehow Russia will continue to use Ukraine as a transit pipeline and the Europeans will somehow uh, not buy Russian energy or not buy it when it comes to Nord Stream or Turkish Stream. So uh, it's a hope. I don't know it's a good strategy to have. Uh, but we are seeing, as I said, as we still are figuring out our policy towards Russia, the Russians are taking steps to try to secure their position in a way that when we decide in Washington what our approach to Russia is going to be, uh, the facts on the ground will have shifted in a direction that Moscow feels will be more beneficial to their strategic interests.